0: We're going to be using a fair bit of Bible this morning, so keep your Bibles handy. And i uh, going to probably teach a little more than preach. You may find uh, something of a vein in our recent services, and that just means the Lord's working us through something, and that's okay. But Mark chapter 6, starting to read at verse 35, says, And when the day was now fast spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away. There was a great crowd there listening to Jesus. They said, send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat, or you feed them. And they said unto him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five, or five loaves, and two fishes. And he commanded them to make them all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks, by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all, and they did all eat and were filled. It's a statement of the miraculous power of the Lord. It's not a statement of giant bread or giant fish. Verse 43 says, And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes, and they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. And straightway he constrained his disciples to go into the ship, to go to the other side before he to Bethsaida where he sent away, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, between three and six a.m., he cometh unto them walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up into them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart Was hardened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the life that we have in it. Lord, may you speak to us. Lord, may you add to our understanding. May you, Lord, contribute to your will and your purpose in our lives this morning through your word, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This passage that we've read contains a couple of wonderful accounts miraculous power of jesus christ firstly the multiplying of five loaves and two fish to feed a multitude and and then when the disciples saw jesus walking on the water and how when he came into the ship that the storm was immediately calmed if you read the parallel passage what that means when we use the expression parallel passage means the same story but recorded in one of the other gospels if you read the, the parallel passage in Matthew, you'll see that this is also the time that Peter walked on the water, miraculously. But I want to draw your attention to the last two verses, if I can, of our text. Tells, the first thing it tells us is that when Jesus walked on the water, came into the ship, and the, star, the storm was calmed, that they were sore amazed, or they were struggling to grasp what was taking place they weren't really considering what had taken place when Jesus had multiplied the loaves and the fishes or the power that he actually had. Now, you can say that because at the end of verse 52, and this is really what my title is this morning, it says, because their heart was hardened. And I want to preach or teach this morning, harden not your heart. Harden not your heart. If you go across a couple of pages to chapter 8 of Mark, We'll add another text to this and then begin to break it down a little bit. But in Mark chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, listen, pay attention, Beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. The Lord's telling us to be careful of these things because we forgot to bring bread. And in verse 17, it says, And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye? Or why do ye think I've said this because you have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither you... Don't you understand? Neither understand. Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? Do you not remember when I break the five loaves among five thousand how many baskets full of fragments took you up they say unto him twelve and when the seven among four thousand how many baskets full of fragments took you up and they said seven and he said unto them how is it that you do not understand amen when you and I think about somebody having a hard heart what are the images or the concepts that come to mind when we use that expression often if we think that somebody has a hard heart we might possibly think that they lack compassion they're not a caring person or you know that there's a real hardness about them they don't seem very friendly very warm we might say that they're hardened because they're not willing to forgive somebody else or something like that And we'll get into that toward the end of the message and it's not wrong to use that expression if somebody's uncaring I don't think it's inaccurate to say they're, they're a hard person but in these passages in the gospel of Mark Jesus is not challenging his disciples because they've been uncaring or lacking in compassion he's not saying you guys are mean you know you don't care about anybody else you're without compassion that's not why he's saying is your heart still hard it's not the purpose. His, his frustration with them is that even though he is showing them his miraculous power and trying to speak to them and communicate to them things that are spiritual, things that are more than just the natural world, things like the leaven of the Pharisees, they're struggling to understand him because they're having a hard time trying to see things in a new way from a different perspective or from a different understanding they're trying to comprehend what is going on and the things that jesus is saying from their old way of thinking or from their natural mindset natural thought processes they're amazed at jesus walking on the water because that just doesn't happen that's the, doesn't you don't have to be a scientist to understand that most of us don't walk on water And so they're trying, it says they were sore, amazed. And when he came into the ship and the storm just went, and everything was calm, they're grappling with these things from a natural perspective. And he's saying to them, don't you remember what I did with the loaves and the fishes? He's not talking about his ability to cater for 5,000 people, but he's saying there's more going on here than is natural. There are things that I'm trying to get you to grasp, trying to get you to see but your heart is hard and you're not grasping those things if you read through the fifth chapter i think it's chapter five and six of the book of matthew you'll find that jesus would often say something like you have heard it said fill in the blank you know like for example he said you have heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemies Then he said, but I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for them, bless them, pray for them that despitefully use you. And throughout this comparative example where if you read those chapters in Matthew, he does it multiple times, he'll say, "This this is how you're thinking now. He said, this is what you've heard said. This is the way you've been raised. This is the culture, the society that you're in. But I say unto you. So he's saying... This is where you are. I'm trying to take you over here. And that's what he was doing with the disciples. He's saying, I'm not showing you this for a magic trick. I'm not doing this stuff so you can say, you know, hey, I know this guy that can take a few bits of bread and fish and feed a multitude. He said, I'm trying to take you from somewhere you are to somewhere that I want you to be. But the problem with that process at the moment is that their hearts were hard. You see... What he was trying, slowly getting them to understand was his kingdom and his ways and what he wants for humanity is not accessed, it's not achieved, it's not uh, whatever other word that's just left my mind, through natural means. But it takes place through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. That's why Paul said, he said, For what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of man that is in him he said how do you know natural stuff except by your natural thinking he said but the things of God men don't know except they have the spirit of God he was showing us the contrast between that's your default setting you want to know what God thinks you got to have the spirit of God you got to look into the word of God amen so when Jesus asks the disciples is your heart still hard He's saying something we might say in a more modern way. Don't you get it yet? Are <laughs> you're not getting what I'm trying to communicate. Are you're not getting. There's more to this than just bread and fish. Now, in their defense, in the disciples' defense, they didn't have the Holy Ghost yet. So we need to cut them a little bit of slack because it takes us a while too, and we have the Holy Ghost. But Jesus was saying to them, I'm trying to get your hearts and minds over here. But you keep going back to the default setting over there. You're, you're not allowing this process to take place. The word "harden" means to make stubborn or resistant. And so when we take that understanding and we apply it to us today in the New Testament church, to be hard-hearted, yes, it may mean you lack compassion and you need to be a bit more caring, but to be hard-hearted is to be stubborn and to resist the purpose of, and the process of God in our lives especially when we're trying to achieve it from our own understanding because they're not compatible we we referenced this verse in recent weeks but Saul sorry Samuel said to Saul he said stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry i get to thinking about that verse why is being stubborn like worshiping an idol Because when you worship something other than God, you're resisting God and putting your trust in something else. Your faith is being directed at something that is against God and against His word. You're being stubborn toward the Lord. And so the Lord considered stubbornness to be equal with being an idol worshiper. Because more often than not, the problem is caused. When we think about idolatry, we we often think of ugly little statues. But idolatry, particularly in a Western world, the biggest problem we have in the Western world is that we place our faith in ourselves and in our understanding of how things should be. See, we don't think of that as idolatry, but when anything that you put your faith in, that you put that faith above God and above His Word, is a form of idolatry. And so when we are stubborn and resist God's will and his purpose and his process, it's because we want it our way. I want to do it my way, and I put my confidence in myself. And in many ways, that's the toughest form of idolatry to deal with. It's pretty easy to explain to somebody, you see that weird-looking thing made out of stone or wood or whatever, that's dead. I can't answer your prayers. And we can say, you shouldn't worship that. You should worship a God that's alive, that died for your sins. But when that idol is my will, my way, we're hard-hearted. We don't think of it that way, but that's what's, ha- that's what's going on. We're resisting. We're stubborn against the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm not sure exactly how long we will take, but we'll see. i know that many of you here know your bibles but for the sake of a little bit of a of a platform for those that may be newer than others hebrews as an epistle or letter is a book that compares the old covenant or what we might understand as the old testament relationship between god and israel it compares that with the new covenant or the new testament relationship between god and the church it's a comparison when you read, there's a lot of great things in the book of Hebrews, but that's one of the, the themes that runs through that epistle. And one of the reasons, or that, that comparison happens for a couple of basic reasons. The first one is to demonstrate that the new is better than the old. When you read Hebrews, you'll see that word better features quite prominently. It talks about better things, better promises, better better covenant, better experience with the Lord. And the second reason that comparison takes place it is that is to urge the church that it was written to, not to drag the new back into the old, not to take the try to get the blessings and the promises of the new by the methods of the old. And if you read the New Testament, you'll see that was a struggle that took place in in the New Testament church at quite a bit. Amen. But so how does that affect us? None of us, as far as I'm aware, are Jewish. None of us here this morning are wrestling with letting go of the mosaic law and, and coming into the new testament church where you know i don't know that too many of us are struggling with with different food laws and many of the things that the jews had to struggle with i personally have no problem with eating bacon whatsoever i think bacon's good stuff Look will get some hands up for bacon this morning that's all right so so we're not jews so you know, it's, it's an interesting lesson, but how does it affect us? It affects us because just like those people, we have an old and we have a new. We have an old way and we have a new way. In our past life, before we were born again, we did what we wanted. Our thinking was directed by the lusts of our flesh. Now, we use that word lust and a lot of us think that that only applies to things that are of moral nature sexual sins but lust is anything that your carnal nature desires particularly that is against the word of god so in our old life that was how we were governed we did what we wanted to do we did what we thought was best for us and if we're honest this morning we made a great big mess of it using that as our method the new life that we have when our lives belong to the Lord is that he now teaches us how to think, not like zombies. Brother Frost shared with the men just recently at our men's prayer meeting about being brainwashed and how sometimes, you know, we don't like that word because it has a lot of negative connotation. But our brains need to be washed in the Word of God. You've got some things in your brain that the Scriptures need to wash out. So we don't want to be brainwashed in the sense of being in some crazy you know cult or something but there's nothing wrong with saying hey i'm bloodwashed, i'm brainwashed by the word and the spirit of god there's nothing wrong with that and so in the in the new testament church the way we live and our understanding has got to come from what pleases him and what glorifies him and so just as some of those new testament jews struggled to leave behind their natural setting so do we When we become Christians, there are things that are uh, ingrained into us from our past, our upbringing, our experience, our culture, those many factors that contribute to who we are, we can struggle to leave them behind and step into the new. And if we're not careful, sometimes we try to have the benefit of the new from the platform of the old. And from what Jesus is saying, that qualifies as the hardening of our hearts being stubborn and resistant to what God wants to do. So we're in Hebrews chapter 3. I didn't forget. Hebrews 3 and 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years, wherefore i was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways so i swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living god but exhort one another daily while it is called today see there's an emphasis on the present god deals with us in the present he can fix our past And He can keep us in our future, but He deals in the present. When God deals with us, He doesn't say, let's you and I get together on the second week of next month. He deals with us in the right now. That's how God operates. That's why it says, Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation. There's an emphasis on hear the voice of God. Do it now and don't harden your heart. That's the emphasis here. Now, if you'll... Do we need to come back to Hebrews 3? Let's go to Exodus chapter 17. I told you you'd need your Bibles. If you know much Old Testament history, particularly through the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, you'll know that the Israelites often provoke the Lord. They often upset the Lord and, and we're very quick to judge them and then turn around and do the same thing. But they often provoke the Lord. But this passage in the Hebrews is usually understood to be referring to what took place in Exodus chapter 17. So let's start at verse 1 of Exodus 17. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. That's just the place name. That's not talking about sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink wherefore the people did chide with Moses they gave Moses grief we would say and said give us water that we may drink and Moses said unto them why are you giving me a hard time about this why are you provoking the Lord or why do you tempt the Lord and the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses and it was all his fault and said wherefore is it that you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, and our cattle with thirst. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock and there shall water come out of it that the people may drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not that's a little terrifying to sort of shake your fist at God and say Lord you with me or not what are you doing today get your act together God but it's, it's interesting that there is some parallels here with what we read in the New Testament because the Lord was getting frustrated with the disciples. He's saying, look, I'm doing all these things to get you to understand a whole new area of life and to trust me. Same thing was happening here because if you back up several chapters, in chapter 14, the Red Sea miraculously parts and God leads a multitude using Moses through a Red Sea it's an incredible miracle and then there's dancing and singing and celebrating and then even when you get to the end of that chapter they get a bit thirsty and they start complaining but then in chapter 16 there's no bread to eat and they start to complain again and the Lord miraculously provides manna for them in the desert provides it for them fresh every day and then you get to here in chapter 17 and they're they're complaining and the Lord's kind of saying look back over your shoulder and see what I've done. Do you not remember the Red Sea? Do you not remember the water that I healed here, the bread that I supplied? Why is it that every time it gets to be a problem, you start to whinge and complain? And they called the place Massa and Meribah. And those two words mean temptation and strife. What happens when you harden your heart to the Lord and do things in the natural? Temptation and strife anybody like strife not a big fan not a big fan of strife nobody likes it in their homes we don't like it in our workplaces we don't like it anywhere but god continually showed up for them continually and yet they continually hardened their hearts why their thinking did not change They, they were not saying well hey moses we're out of water here but if you go and talk to the Lord, we know that he'll provide for us. No, they were going to kill him because they had no water to drink. And they were basically challenging the Lord and provoking God and saying, what you bring us out here for? Don't you care about us? Don't you love us? And the Lord's saying, how short is your memory? And we're not kept you all this way. Temptation and strife. And the urging to the church in the book of Hebrews is, hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. Harden not your heart. Don't automatically, when it gets hard, don't automatically go back to your default setting. Don't return to the temptation and the strife and all the trouble. Amen. Hebrews 3 and 13, we read it, but I'm going to read that verse again. It says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What does it say? It says exhort one another. What that means is you and I have a role in this between each other. It's not just today, Lord. I'm going to hear your voice. You and me, Jesus. Yes, you need to be like that. You need to hear the voice of God as individual. But there's a one another component here. There's a one, exhort one another. Come on, bro. Let's do this. You know, there's t- if there's you know, where, if we get strife, where does strife happen? Does strife happen? in isolation by yourself if I go home this week pull the phone out of the wall let my mobile battery go flat lock the doors Nobody's. am I likely to have strife on my own? probably not if I am I've got some serious problems strife usually happens in the space between two human beings that's where strife happens between humanity and it's that space that we're encouraged to go hey exhort one another daily while it's called today don't be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin don't allow these things to get in between us and cause strife you know there's something that I've in the last couple of months through my own experiences and through listening to the the accounts of others how powerful are misunderstandings how powerful are misunderstandings a misunderstanding is an express lane to strife you know you have a conversation with somebody as far as you're concerned it was harmless and nothing you go home thinking everything's fine they go home thinking of 27 different ways to end you and you haven't got a clue why? because there was a misunderstanding nobody's deliberately set out to cause trouble but somebody said A and they interpreted B and here you go now we need to be careful that we don't that we're careful what we say we need to be careful to try to avoid misunderstandings but they're going to happen They're going to happen. People get upset. So how do we avoid that? (laughs) Well, that's one option. That's not in my notes, strangely enough. Maybe I should put that in, stay home. (laughs) I think I need to go back to the start of this message. We missed something along the way. (laughs) Just feels like we failed and I need to go home and call it a day. Bless the Lord. We need to pray. My goodness. (laughs) One of the ways we can avoid misunderstandings is to A, give our brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. That's one way. Do you really think... I've had that conversation with people. They'll say, well, so-and-so did this, and they did that, and this is what happened. And I'll ask them, knowing that person like you do, do you really think their intent was to cause you that that offence? And they'll say, well, probably not. Reluctantly, they'll admit that no, they're not normally that sort of person. And so we give our brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. And if there is a misunderstanding, we ignore them, we let it fester, and we cause a problem that puts an earthquake right down the middle of the church. Or we just stay home, as Sister Pam has advised us. Let's have a look at some scripture, and I'm not going to be too much longer. Mark chapter 11. Temptation and strife. You know, when you look into the New Testament, strife is one of the works of the flesh. In the Book of Galatians, that's worth remembering. If you have the gift of strife, it's not from God. Mark eleven and twenty-five says, "And when you stand praying, comma, forgive if you have aught against any." that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you read on, the next verse is not in my notes, but it basically says if you want to get forgiveness, you've got to be able to give it. it says, if you, when you stand to pray, when I approach God, when I want to come in to His presence and His throne room in that place where I need to talk to Him and I want Him to talk to me, I need Him to talk to me, it says if, 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 if I have ought against any, it doesn't say as long as it's only this area, that area, and this area, not the other ones that are really hard. It just says forgive. That's the first part of Scripture. Now let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Try and bring this all together and land this plane. Matthew, chapter 5, similar sort of theme. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... Again, it's about approaching God in worship and in prayer. And there, rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. So, this time it's not you've got aught against your brother. Now you've remembered, hey, I realize Brother Gavin's really angry at me. He didn't like it when, you know, I told him he had a bad haircut or whatever it was. Then I have to, according to this place, leave my gift at the altar. So, We we don't bring animal sacrifice, but we instead of bringing our worship, we put that on pause. We go our way and be reconciled to our brother, and then come and offer the gift. Now, the word "reconcile" here, in the Greek, means to change thoroughly. It doesn't mean to go. We're all good, bro. Yep, yep. Move on. It means we need to deal with it. Need to deal with it. Now let's jump a few chapters further to chapter eighteen, and then we'll try and put some of this together and see if the Lord can challenge us this morning Matthew 18 starting at verse 15 moreover if thy brother shall trespass against thee okay now let me stop for a second here and say trespass uh, at least implies the idea of sin Uh, it's something that has has crossed you it's not little tiny things okay. I have enough confidence in the maturity of brother Gavin that if I told him I didn't like his haircut he'd probably go home and see if he can brush it differently but he's, he's not going to leave the church because I made a comment about his haircut the facts are as Christians sometimes we need to not be so delicate but that, again that, that doesn't excuse excuse behaviour that, that hurts other people's feelings so if thy brother shall trespass against thee, you know how you can measure if it's a trespass? If you're having trouble letting go of it. That's that simple. It may not be scripturally defined as sin, but if after a month and another haircut, Brother Gavin is still upset at me, then I've trespassed against him. That's how you know if it's a trespass. If you're honest enough, you're able to say, hey, it's no big deal. We all have misunderstandings in how we think. Uh, this is a little bit humorous, but we were we were at brother and sister swiles on friday night and caleb caleb says the funniest things caleb's still young enough that he associates size with age so in other words as you get older you get bigger so in his eyes i'm really old because i'm really big and he told me the other night that i'm going to see god soon because i'm so big i'm obviously really old i'm running out of time i'm going to see god soon which is very encouraging but you see, there's an example of misunderstanding his thinking and how he applies that. He's just a little kid. I didn't, don't think he was being nasty. I've forgiven him. It's okay. But it's an, it, when, we're, when our thinking and our understanding is out of whack, our application becomes out of whack. Amen. So back to Matthew. Matthew 15, 18, 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Between who? Thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. It's back to that idea of reconciliation. But, there's a a step two. If he won't hear you, take with thee one or two more, then in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's a verse of scripture that a lot of people like to misuse. Two or three witnesses. This is talking about dealing with church problems okay so if if your brother if your brother's offended you and you go to him and say you know you this happened la 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 and he just says yeah whatever get over it if if it's an ongoing see you've got to weigh up the weight of a problem if brother gavin gets the church elders and comes to see me about his haircut this is getting a bit intense you know we've got to say what's what's this really worth But there is a process here, and I'm not going to take time to teach all the way through this, but even when we get to verse 17, it says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, so you take these witnesses with you, they still won't listen, you take it to the church, if if he won't listen to the church, then unto you, he's, he's, you he's like a sinner, a heathen man and a publican. And then the Lord goes on to say what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It has to do with the, with the church making decisions and, and judgments on situations. There's a big responsibility. But the thing is, we could spend a whole couple of weeks on this passage, but verse 15 by itself is a big enough challenge for us as Christians. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. How often do we violate that scripture? How often do we choose to tell everybody except our brother (laughs) and introduce a whole pack of strife that we don't need? The reason, see, here's the interesting part about these three passages Mark 11, Matthew 5, and, and Matthew 18. There's no denial that there's offense. There's no denial that there's trespass. There's no des- denial that there's ought one against another. But the obligation in every passage is with me. If I have ought against a brother when I stand to pray, I'm required to forgive. If I bring my offering and I remember my brother has aught against me, I'm required to go to my brother. If, if, if my brother's offended me, if he's trespassed against me, I'm required to go to him and say, Hey, bro, I'm sorry about your haircut. It'll grow back. Whatever the situation is, the responsibility is mine. But here's the problem. Naturally, that's not how I think. Naturally, I harden my heart and go back to this is the old way of thinking. They shouldn't have said this. They should know better than that. They're a Christian. They should be more mature. Blah, 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 blah. And I go back to, oh, it's because we forgot bread. And the Lord's saying it's got nothing to do with the bread don't harden your hearts so i'm trying to get you to understand something else but we violate the scripture and deal with it every way except the right way again let me be very very clear we've got to take great care as brethren by the love of god that is shared abroad in our hearts through the holy ghost not to offend we've got to do what we can to avoid misunderstanding but misunderstanding happens you married couples. Do you never misunderstand each other? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who, who's been married longest here? Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe the brother and sister. Do you pair never misunderstand each other? Always? <laughs> so if it can happen between a husband and wife that the Bible describes as one flesh who've been living in the same house for a minute or two now what are the chances of it not happening between us it can happen in your home with the person that you are hopefully closer to than anybody else you know sometimes when you're married a while you can almost tell what somebody else what what your spouse is thinking there are other times you haven't got a clue And worse than that, you think you know, but you got it wrong. That's when you're really in trouble. When you think you've worked it out and you missed it completely, oh boy. That's when you stand to pray, forgive. But there's going to be misunderstanding. Should we do everything we can to avoid it? Yes, yes, yes. Should we be unrealistic and expect it to never happen? No. It's not going to happen. You can't get perfection in this lifetime. The response is what makes the difference in the house of God and in the family of God. Unless we take Sister Pam's counsel and stay home, we're going to have to deal with each other. I'm going to have to forgive you and I know you're going to have to forgive me. But I have a choice. Will I harden my heart? Because from what we've learned this morning, the hardening of the heart that Jesus was talking about was doing things the natural way, not his way. So the hardening of the heart was, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We like that one in the natural. But then he said, but I say unto you, bless them that persecute you. That's not, and, but where's the default setting? The default setting is our flesh. It takes a conscious effort to do the things of God. You won't be spiritual or righteous without any kind of decision. It requires, I'm going to choose to trust God, to walk by faith, to depend on His grace, to be filled with His Spirit. That's what has to take place. When you stand to pray, forgive. You know, some of these little passages, like... If our brother trespassed against us, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If we violated that scripture less, we'd have a whole lot less strife. If we had a lot less strife, we'd have a lot more victory. If we had a lot more victory, we'd see the demonstration of the power of God a lot more freely. God wants to do things His way. But He's saying, harden not your heart. Don't resist the Lord. Don't be stubborn. You know, it's like when somebody knows they're wrong, they know they need to forgive, they know, you know, I watch people. I watch people, it's like this internal wrestling match. They know what God wants them to do, but it's the battle between, do I do the right thing? I do I harden my heart. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. It's just a lesson that I hope challenges you and encourages you a little bit this morning.